This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey friends, I have a show that I'd like to share with you today. It is right up my personal alley, so much so that I made a similarly themed season of Art Curious a few years back. So today it is my pleasure to introduce you to The Art of Crime. The Art of Crime is a history podcast about the unlikely collisions between true crime and the arts. And it's a show that's created, written, and narrated by Gavin Whitehead. Gavin notes that he has had an interest in all things criminal and artistic for as long as he can remember, and this podcast is the perfect intersection of those two fascinations. The show is now in its second season, and it is all about several artists who have committed, attempted, or at least have been implicated in an assassination. Today's episode is all about the painter David Alfaro Siqueiros, who was a diehard communist, and Siqueiros fought in the Mexican Revolution in the mid-1910s. Over the next several decades, he would revolutionize the theory and practice of muralism in Mexico and abroad, largely inspired by his radical politics. In 1940, his political convictions led to a less honorable enterprise when he spearheaded an assault on the home of Russian revolutionary Leon Trotsky as he and his family slept in their beds. Enjoy, and I will be back to you next week with an all-new episode of Art Curious. David Alfaro Sicayudos raised his 45 caliber revolver in the air and fired a warning shot. He could only hope it would frighten off the mob that was closing in around him. Aged 27, Siqueiros had an unruly tangle of curly black hair on his head and a long slender face that was equine enough for his friends to call him caballo, Spanish for horse. It was 1924 and he was cornered in a dimly lit stairwell at the Preparatoria, Mexico City's National Preparatory School. He belonged to a cohort of promising young painters receiving state funding to complete murals there. Many of the muralists, Siqueiros included, were members of the Mexican Communist Party, and their radical politics guided their hands as they painted their walls. Unfortunately, much of the faculty and student body heartily loathed their leftist messaging and had started raising hell about it. They baited the painters and vandalized their murals, pelting them with stones and shooting them with blowguns. The artists took to carrying firearms to protect themselves as well as their handiwork. With tensions escalating as long as they had, the face-off in the stairwell must have appeared inevitable in retrospect. A swarm of approximately 60 students was besieging Siqueiros' workstation, and it looked likely that somebody would get hurt. To his relief, however, he wasn't alone for long. His brothers and brushes heard the report of his pistol and rushed to his aid, 30 or so strong. Meanwhile, a sculptor named Ignacio charged toward the fray from the opposite direction to defend Siqueiros, leading a battalion of battle-ready stonemasons and firing his own pistol to intimidate the rabble. Finding themselves threatened from multiple sides, the students took flight. Siqueiros escaped unscathed, as did the rioters. Revolutionaries polarize, revered by some and resented by others for challenging the status quo. One of Mexico's most celebrated muralists, 
Siqueiros was revolutionary in more ways than one. Throughout his long and checkered career, he radically reimagined how to make murals in the modern world. For him, painting and politics were inextricably linked, and his leftward convictions informed both how and what he painted, much to the dismay of some viewers and patrons. Outside the art world, Siqueiros fought for revolutionary causes on the battlefield. As a student, he put his education on pause and took up arms in the Mexican Revolution, a bloody conflict that changed the course of history in his homeland. As an established painter almost two decades later, he would risk his life in another war, this time on foreign soil. One rainy night in 1940, his political convictions drove him to a less honorable cause. He and several others opened fire on the Mexican home of Leon Trotsky as he and his family slept in their beds. A much-vaunted hero of the Russian Revolution, Trotsky had since become public enemy number one in the Soviet Union as a result of a coordinated, state-backed character assassination, causing a schism within the Communist Party. This would lead to more than one attempt on his life, the last of which proved fatal. Today, we'll hear about how Siqueiros blazed trails within muralism, how Trotsky divided communism, and why the one revolutionary came for the blood of the other under cover of darkness. This is The Art of Crime, and I'm your host, Gavin Whitehead. Welcome to Episode 1 of Assassins, The Assassinations of Leon Trotsky, David Alfaro Siqueiros. December 29, 1896, Siqueiros came of age during the Mexican Revolution, a 10-year period of political upheaval lasting from 1910 to 20. It would shape his worldview. It started with a revolt against the strong-arm dictator Porfirio Diaz. From 1876 to 1911, Diaz served almost continuously as president of Mexico. Under his leadership, the country enjoyed relative stability after prolonged conflict in the 19th century. Mexico modernized as investments flowed in from overseas, with a growing number of train tracks and telegraphs crisscrossing the nation. Meanwhile, domestic industries boomed, including mining and oil. Yet prosperity came at a steep price. Diaz maintained his grip on power by crushing opposition. Furthermore, his policies favored foreign investors plus an elite minority of land-owning Mexicans while impoverishing the peasantry and indigenous populations. By 1910, an ailing Diaz had grown increasingly unloved as unrest simmered among the working classes. That year, a moneyed northern landowner, Francisco Marrero, ran against Diaz in a presidential election, prompting the autocrat to jail him in response, a massive mistake Diaz would soon learn as it touched off an uprising against expectations the rebels bested the federal army loyal to the dictator. In May 1911, Diaz resigned and went into exile, and soon thereafter, Madero succeeded him as president of Mexico. The ouster of Diaz created fault lines in Siqueiros' family. By 1911, they were living in Mexico City, largely influenced by his spirited sister, Maria de la Luz, a 15-year-old Siqueiros leaned way to the left, bidding good riddance to Diaz. Meanwhile, his father, Cipriano, a straight-laced lawyer with an enviable 
income and well-knotted ties to the landowning class resented the revolution. Friction between father and son would shake the household. One night, Cipriano gave a dinner party, and the teenaged David came home to a dining room full of anti-revolutionary fat cats. When they pestered Siqueiros about his own political views, the firebrand smoldered. After declaring, I only know that the Hacendados, the big-time landowners, are a pack of thieves, he proceeded to lock himself in the adjacent room and started smashing whatever he could, jumping out a window and hurling chunks of pavement at the house while his father and guests looked on in horror. Apart from acting out at home, Siqueiros engaged in activism at school. The same year as his dinner party conniption, Siqueiros enrolled in classes at the Academy of San Carlos, the National Academy of Fine Arts. Like many of his classmates, he was disappointed by the old school curriculum. Many of his educators worshipped classical European art while more or less ignoring native Mexican traditions. Their method of instruction required their pupils to sketch copies of antique statuary, working from photographs or modern reproductions, among other equally stultifying exercises. Students longed for a pedagogy with less stone and stasis and more life and liberty, the freedom to improvise rather than merely imitate or to draw the human body from living, breathing models. For a time, Siqueiros and his school fellows sought extracurricular means to fill these gaps in their education. For instance, he and several others hired a young woman to pose nude for them in the home library of a wealthy friend, only for a housemaid to burst in on them. When the servants saw what they were doing, she chased the youths into the street, the model half-naked, condemning what she viewed as pornographic activity. The boys might have laughed about the after-school escapade, but the problem remained. The academy's curriculum needed an overhaul. Emboldened by the downfall of Diaz, Siqueiros and his schoolmates confronted the administration head-on. It started when anatomy students staged a protest which spread to other departments. Soon, they were striking, refusing to attend classes and gaining national attention. The strikers set their sights on Rivas Mercado, the director of the academy, covering the walls with placards demanding his immediate removal and the hiring of a more forward-thinking replacement. When Mercado arrived at San Carlos with his wife and daughter one morning, Siqueiros joined a horde of demonstrators in bombarding them and their car with rotten eggs, tomatoes, and rocks. The violence landed him and several others in police custody. Though he later expressed regret about harming the director's daughter, Siqueiros boasted of his part in the onslaught. The strike dragged on for more than a year. In the end, Mercado had little choice but to step down. The Porfirio Diaz of this academy had been overthrown. Now was not the time for jubilation, however. The nation was nosediving into another crisis. In 1913, aided by the U.S. ambassador to Mexico, several top army officials staged a coup against President Francisco Marrero. A 10-day siege of the capital city ensued, resulting in the death of more than 1,000 Mexicans, many of them civilians. The counter-revolutionaries installed the conservative Victoriano Huerta as president. He, in turn, ordered the successful assassinations of both Madero and Madero's vice president, Pino Suarez. Soon, Huerta found himself embattled by multiple revolutionary forces. They overpowered the federal army, forcing Huerta to resign just over a year after assuming the presidency. The bloodshed wasn't over. The revolutionary armies turned on each other in a struggle for power. 
It was during this stage that Siqueiros enlisted. This chapter of the Mexican Revolution is dizzyingly complex, and we don't have time to discuss it in detail. Suffice to say that Siqueiros fought on the side of a politician named Venustiano Carranza. After a brief stint as a frontline reporter, Siqueiros joined the Batalón Mamá, a squadron comprised of teenaged boys along with older, more experienced soldiers. Throughout the conflict, Siqueiros survived numerous brushes with death, often showing bravery in the face of danger. One night, his unit was journeying to Tehuantepec by rail when Siqueiros awakened to the sound of gunshots and the train ground to a halt. Peering out a window, he discerned flashes of light in the distance. Aware of what he was seeing, yet wanting to avoid panic, he reassured his comrades, don't worry, they're just fireflies. Within seconds, however, these harmless fireflies were piercing the walls and ripping through the soldiers. His battalion was trapped. After a frenzied firefight, the train restarted started. By the time they had reached safety, however, several were dead, including two schoolfellows of Siqueiros. Over time, the revolution mixed hardship with unexpected pleasures. As Siqueiros traveled the country, he patronized famed restaurants and brothels alike. In the words of his biographer, D. Anthony White, quote, the joys, sorrows, excitement, and terror which Siqueiros experienced throughout the revolution ran the gamut of human emotion and made an indelible impression on him, unquote. As as time would tell, Siqueiros fought on the winning side, attaining the rank of second captain. Carranza took Mexico City and went on to serve as president. In 1917, his government promulgated a newly drafted Mexican constitution. Among other provisions, it expanded labor rights, limited the power of the clergy, and instituted agricultural reforms, making it possible to redistribute land. All in all, however, more than one million Mexicans lost their lives throughout the revolution. Because of of the staggering perils they faced, as well as the significance of the reforms brought about by the Mexican Revolution, many would view Siqueiros and other veterans as national heroes. He would certainly benefit from this standing later in life. After hanging up his soldier's pack, Siqueiros resumed his studies. Starting in 1919, he received state funds to explore art history in Europe. Over two years and across several countries, he learned the ins and outs of all the isms of the avant-garde, from cubism in Paris to futurism in Italy. He also gleaned lessons from classical masters, visiting the Sistine Chapel to marvel at Michelangelo to give an example. As he soaked in what he saw, Siqueiros developed his own ideas about the kind of art he wanted to make and the kind of art his country needed. Muralism loomed large in his ruminations. Mexico required a popular art, Siqueiros insisted, art for the masses instead of individuals. He associated the latter with easel painting, which Siqueiros regarded as supremely bourgeois. You painted on a canvas and sold the picture to a buyer, probably a member of the upper crust, who hung it up at home where nobody else could see it. Murals you could paint in public places on giant walls. They belonged to nobody and thus to everybody. For Siqueiros, the very surface he painted on carried a profound political meaning. In 1922, Minister of Education José Vasconcelos lured Siqueiros back to Mexico City with an opportunity to paint for the people. The years before and after the revolution saw a flowering of the arts. Frontrunners of this renaissance placed Mexican rather than European themes at the center of their work, determined to nurture a national culture. 
As this new generation of artists blossomed, Vasconcelos commissioned the country's most visionary painters, including Diego Rivera and José Clemente Orozco, to complete a series of murals inside the Preparatoria, the scene of the clash between Siqueiros and the student protesters. Strictly speaking, Vasconcelos would not hire Siqueiros as an artist. As it turns out, the Mexican government was prepared to bankroll only so many painters. Exploiting a loophole, Vasconcelos employed many of his muralists not as artists, but as instructors instead. Thus, Siqueiros first appeared on the payrolls as teacher number 29 of drawing and mural crafts. A major irony underlay this title. Nobody could deny his facility with a brush, yet Siqueiros was hardly in a position to teach mural crafts. At this stage of his career, he had painted a grand total of zero murals. He was a teacher in name and a novice in practice. Over the course of two long years at the Preparatoria, he would teach himself how to work in this medium through an agonizing process of trial and error. It was with lofty ideals about what he was doing, if little idea about how to do it, that Siqueiros hauled his painting supplies into his new workplace. Founded as a Jesuit school in 1597, the Preparatoria opened as a secular boarding school in the late 1860s. Its facade consisted of a blood-red volcanic rock known as Tizantel, in addition to a series of windows and doors with jams and lintels wrought from cantera, a grayish-white stone. In all, six sections composed the complex. The largest college, the Colegio Grande, was structured around a sun-soaked patio planted with trees in the colonial style. Also on campus was the old chapel, converted into a library at the Preparatoria. Searching for where to paint his murals, Siqueiros alighted on a remote stairwell in the Colegio Chico, or Little College. The stairs connected the first and second floors, with six walls and two domed ceilings at his disposal. Before setting to work, he erected a wooden barricade around his stairwell, securing it with a padlock while he was away. As something of a challenge, Siqueiros resolved to use one of the stairwell's vaulted ceilings as the surface of his first mural. Next, he pondered two big questions, two big questions that dog most painters and would certainly dog him as he matured as a muralist. The first was how to paint. In the beginning, he went with encaustic. Using this ancient method, Siqueiros combined pigments with heated wax and then applied that mixture to the concave ceiling of the Colegio Chico. Next, he blowtorched the colored wax, causing it to dry. Repeating these three basic steps over and over, Siqueiros ended up with layer upon layer of wax fused together by the heat of his blowtorch. The second big question was what to paint. The answer sprang in part from Siqueiros' theory of muralism. From the outset, he considered this medium a whole different beast from easel painting. Muralists paint on walls and ceilings, which amounted to more than oversized canvases. Walls and ceilings constitute buildings, propping them up and dividing their interiors into rooms and floors. For this reason, he concluded, muralists must take the architecture of their workspace into account while conceiving their pictures. In the Colegio Chico, Siqueiros was painting on a vaulted ceiling. Because this surface was overhead, he wanted a subject that would look at home in the heavens. An eagle or an airplane might have fit the bill. In the end, however, he settled on an angel. Employing encaustic, he painted a winged woman draped in a white shawl, hovering on high and gazing downward. 
large and sinewy, her arms are muscular enough to belong to a bodybuilder. Siqueiros painted elemental symbols on either side of his celestial being. For example, pinkish-blue conch shells call to mind ocean water. He titled it The Elements. Painting this angel turned out to be hell. When Siqueiros inspected his work each day, he often hated what he saw and scraped it away, repainting from scratch. Due to these setbacks, Siqueiros spent eight full months on the mural, causing his employer a succession of headaches that turned into migraines. Finally, Siqueiros moved on without finishing The Elements. As 1922 turned into 23 and then 24, Siqueiros changed his mind both about how and what to paint. Preparing for his third mural, he abandoned the cumbersome technique of encaustic. Instead, Siqueiros adopted fresco, another ancient method whereby artists painted on wet plaster. Not without challenges, fresco painting was a battle against time, requiring artists to complete the picture before the plaster dried. As for the subject matter, or the what, of his mural, Siqueiros dispensed with the supernatural mysticism and went for a down-to-earth depiction of real Mexican people. Titled Burial of the Sacred worker, and featured on the Art of Crime website, the mural portrays three workmen carrying a coffin made of rough timber, a hammer and sickle engraved on its deep blue lid. They're headed toward the viewer, and the casket appears almost to protrude from the wall. Perfectly stoic, the laborers betray no emotion as they convey their comrade to his final resting place. Siqueiros painted the pallbearers as indigenous Mexicans, their short, dark hair, angular cheekbones, and well-defined jawlines modeled on Olmec ceremonial and statuary that the muralist had studied at the Museum of Anthropology. In so doing, he made art history. Burial of the Sacred Worker stands as the first mural to depict indigenous Mexicans as members of the modern working class. In unusually high praise, Diego Rivera proclaimed that Siqueiros had achieved, quote, the most complete synthesis of our race, unquote, since pre-Columbian times. Compared to the elements, Sacred Worker featured more overtly political imagery, as would much, though far from all, of Siqueiros later work. The hammer and sickle inscribed on the coffin, plus the solemn dignity of the laborers, clearly point to his communist affiliations. Very much in line with the nationalist renaissance and contemporary art, moreover, Siqueiros foregrounded not Europeans, but Mexicans in his mural. Siqueiros might have continued painting murals at the Preparatoria were it not for his political activities at the time. While he and his fellow muralists were cashing checks from the Mexican government, they were also railing against the Mexican government. In 1922, a group of them formed the Syndicate of Painters, Sculptors, and Technical Workers, an organization allied with the Communist Party. Siqueiros assumed a prominent position as general secretary and became the public face of the organization. In March 1924, Siqueiros published the first edition of a revolutionary newspaper that became the press organ of the Communist Party, El Machete. The muralist designed the famous masthead, a woodcut of a fist gripping a machete, with the title of the periodical emblazoned in bold lettering on a blade of pure black. Apart from eye-grabbing engravings and prints, El Machete featured incendiary slogans like the rifle in the hands of the proletariat is the only guarantee of liberty. In the dead of night, the publishers descended on working-class neighborhoods in Mexico City and pasted copies to the walls like posters. Since the revolution, the government had swung like a pendulum back to the right, and it would not countenance the syndicate's criticism. On December 13, 1924, it called for the termination of contracts of any and all muralists associated with El Machete, Siqueiros among them. 
he was out of a job. By this point, partly because of the syndicate's rabble-rousing, demonstrators had damaged his murals. Only the elements remained intact, though still unfinished. It would be eight years before Siqueiros painted another mural, 15 before he painted another in Mexico. After working as a labor organizer in the state of Jalisco throughout the mid to late 20s, Siqueiros got himself deeper and deeper in trouble. First, he ran afoul of the Communist Party for his lack of discipline. Then he landed in prison for political reasons. While behind bars and then under house arrest, he turned out more than 100 oil paintings, making him a national celebrity painter. Still, the political situation was dicey enough for him to pack up and move to Los Angeles in 1932. It was in the City of Angels that Siqueiros embarked on his next mural project. After a friend put in a good word for him, he was hired to teach a summer course on fresco painting at the Cuinard Art Academy. Siqueiros hadn't worked on a mural, fresco or otherwise, since his ill-fated tenure at the Preparatoria. Back then, he had borne the title of teacher too, but only for the sake of appeasing bureaucrats in charge of the state coffers. Now, he was on the hook for providing actual instruction to a class full of students, many of whom worked as professional painters. Given this platform, Siqueiros would do more than teach fresco. He would spearhead what he saw as a revolution in the art form. To this end, he assigned a class project. He and his students would collaborate on a mural on the outside wall of the Cuinard Art Academy. However, painting outdoors posed a formidable challenge. They would have to work with a medium that could survive the wind, heat, and rainfall of Southern California. Remember, customary fresco made use of plaster as a base, but plaster would flake and fade away under harsh weather conditions. Ready as ever to shake things up, Siqueiros marched into class one day and made a dramatic declaration, quote, traditional fresco is dead, unquote. It was a sudden and unexpected death, but nobody was crying partly because Siqueiros had masterminded a novel form of fresco painting, one he deemed fit for the 20th century. He and his students would paint on wet, white cement instead of moist plaster, precisely because cement could withstand the elements. This leap forward led to yet another hurdle. As noted earlier, painting on damp plaster was a race against the clock. Cement dries even faster than plaster, meaning Siqueiros and his pupils faced greater time pressure. Then it hit him. His modern muralism required the speed of a modern tool, the spray gun. At the time, manufacturers were already using this instrument to paint automobiles and household appliances like refrigerators and stoves. Despite murmurs of skepticism, Siqueiros brought his students around to the idea. Armed with a spray gun, Siqueiros found that he could paint not just with greater speed, but with increased spontaneity, his spirits soaring as he blasted away. Whether in military uniform or a pair of overalls, Siqueiros loved to pull a trigger. Equipped with their spray guns and christening themselves the mural block painters, Siqueiros and company set to work on their project. In keeping with the collectivist ethos of communism, Siqueiros preached the necessity of teamwork. In theory, he and his students collaborated as equals on a shared undertaking. In practice, however, Siqueiros was the master and they his apprentices. At the end of the day, he had the final word on what they painted. Never was this more evident than the final night of their enterprise. By then, the class had painted a construction site based on photographs of working-class builders. 
Beneath the Cunard Art Academy's second-story windows, about a half-dozen painted laborers hunched down on a scaffold, their attention turned to the street down below. The evening before the mural's completion, the team had yet to paint what it was the construction workers were looking at on the street. That part of the wall remained untouched. When the headmistress, Mademoiselle Cunard, asked what would go there, Siqueiros informed her that he and his team would paint a street performer, inspired by the buskers who made their music and executed magic tricks throughout Los Angeles. After a hard day's work, however, Siqueiros was exhausted and told his collaborators to head home for the night. A surprise was waiting for them the following morning. Siqueiros had lied about his fatigue and finished the mural in the middle of the night. He would pull this and similar stunts throughout his career. Making an executive decision, Siqueiros ditched the promised street performer in favor of more politically freighted subject matter. A labor organizer standing on a soapbox, clearly addressing the construction workers above, flanked by a black man to the left and a white woman to the right, each of them holding a baby in their arms. Interracial harmony and coordinated reform efforts among the working classes can bring about a bright future, the artwork implies. The mural block painters titled it Street Meeting. Not unlike Siqueiros' murals in the Preparatoria, Street Meeting riled up viewers unfriendly to Marx and his disciples. In the taste-making magazine, California Arts and Architecture, one critic opined, quote, The art of fresco in this country will languish until it is able to free itself from the sorrows of Mexico and the dull red glow of communism, unquote. Others took issue with the inclusion of a black man. Before long, anti-red protesters demanded that Cuinar destroy the mural. In the end, she gave in. Without question, this marked a loss for the mural block painters. At the same time, the negative publicity won them notoriety. Soon, other artists wanted to join up, and the team ballooned from 7 to 24 in number. Then they received a new commission. F.K. Fernez, owner of the Plaza Arts Center, hired them to paint one of the plaza's exterior walls. Far larger than the side of the Cuinard Art Academy, this wall measured 16 feet tall by 80 feet wide. The mural block painters would relish the challenge. As the crew got to work, Siqueiros tussled with a theoretical and practical problem that bedeviled him for years, one that never would have occurred to me before I read up on muralism. It's all about perspective and how the viewer engages with the picture. Think about how you look at a painting on canvas in a gallery, the canvas being of average size. Chances are you approach it, stop, study the Picasso or Matisse or whatever, and then move on. You remain stationary when viewing the artwork, taking it in from a single vantage point. That's not how it goes with monumental murals, especially outdoors. Say you've got a mural on the facade of a building right on the sidewalk in the middle of a city block. Plenty of viewers would see the painting as pedestrians bound for some destination, work or wherever. They may well look at the painting as they pass by, but they may not stop to do it. Moreover, as they proceed from one end of the block to the other, they inevitably see the mural from a variety of angles. In contrast to the typical gallery goer then, a good number of mural gazers remain in motion while viewing the painting, checking it out from shifting vantage points. This insight gave rise to Sikeiros's concept 
work of the dynamic spectator. While at work on the second L.A. mural, Siqueiros photographed the plaza from various spots on the sidewalk, getting a sense of how it would look to a mobile viewer, and made alterations to the composition accordingly. Early on in the process, Siqueiros announced the title of the mural, Tropical America. When the scaffolding came down, it stunned the neighborhood. The colors were so bold they almost poked you in the eye. As many observers studied the mural, however, they bristled at its message. In the minds of many, the title had conjured visions of exotic Latin American flora and fauna. You know, like toucans and jaguars and coconuts and whatnot. That was not what Siqueiros gave them. The mural's central panel shows an indigenous Mexican crucified, his arms roped to the crossbar, and his head lolling so far to one side it seems about to fall off. Perched above the corpse is a gigantic bald eagle. Far from a sunburst of tropical exotica, the mural issues a searing indictment of American imperialism and its devastating impact on indigenous Mexicans. Not unlike street meeting, Tropical America unleashed a furor. While the art community marveled at its vibrant hues and composition, less appreciative observers condemned its political commentary. Mr. Fernez caved under pressure in the end and had the mural whitewashed. Siqueiros fumed over what had turned out to be another bust. Tropical America has since been restored. For more information, check out the Art of Crime website.